I want to start this morning with a Dilbert cartoon. And to throw this up here, Scott. Um, it's a 21st century uh, description of loneliness. Dilbert says, I'm addicted to email. My endorphins spike when I get a message. When there are no messages, loneliness and despair overcome me. And then he's asked, have you tried sending email to yourself? And he said, we don't talk about that. (laughs) It's definitely a recasting, uh, redefinition of loneliness in the age of social media. But in all seriousness, loneliness is a huge problem. And I wonder if you have ever felt alone. I certainly have through a variety of seasons of my life. When the kids were little and it was just enough to get by every day, all that time I used to spend with guy friends just went out the window and uh, definitely was a a lonely time in respect to that. Was it worth it? Of course it was. It was a season of life that required that. But another season of loneliness for me was in my growing up years for a variety of reasons. There were five years between me and my older brother, and we were not close. My dad was going through some medical issues at the time, from about 6 to 16 for me, that left him really very, very exhausted, uh, sometimes unavailable. I experienced some early rejection from a best friend. We lived in a small town without a lot of kids, so often was often played alone. All those factors contributed to a sense of Wow, I'm really on my own in life. A psychiatrist at Cambridge who studied uh, loneliness over four decades said that many people have a hard time admitting that they are lonely. Admitting you're lonely, he says, is like admitting you're a loser. Psychiatry, and here is his exact quote, psychiatry has worked hard to destigmatize things like depression. And... To a large part, it has been successful. People are comfortable saying they're depressed. But they're not comfortable saying they're lonely because you're the kid sitting alone in the cafeteria. Why are we lonely? It's really a great question to think about. Why are we lonely? I mean, all of us, every single person in this room longs for belonging and community and togetherness. But at the same time, at the same time, what our culture teaches, what our culture values, what our culture highlights through popular or through uh, media undermines the very thing that we long for. In the last several hundred years, a shift has taken place. Our definition of the meaning of life, our purpose, Our view of the self has changed dramatically. And with that change, there has been relational consequences. This can be seen clearly by demonstrating, this shift can be seen clearly in the way that we view marriage. Tim Keller makes this point in the book called The Meaning of Marriage. He describes that before the enlightenment of the 18th and 19th centuries, older cultures taught that marriage was a solemn bond, 
a lifelong promise where both husband and wife submitted their individual goals and interests in favor of the relationship and to serve the common good. And it was taught and understood that marriage was given by God not only to serve believers, but to benefit the community and the greater interest of the culture. Marriage created character by bringing the man and woman into a covenant relationship. And of particular emphasis, hundreds of years ago, lifelong marriage was seen as providing the most stable environment for children to grow and flourish. Therefore, society had itself Society itself had a vital interest in seeing marriages succeed. That's why marriages often worked through the legal system. So in short, in the past, there was companionship indeed and love that was taught about marriage. But you also embraced a duty and a responsibility for the good of others and society. But... That has changed. Tim Keller writes this, he, and he cites a John Witt, who's a legal and religious scholar at uh, Emory uh, University Law School. Keller writes this, um, again, I, I'm sorry, it's in Keller's book, but it's quoted by this John Witt. He writes that during the Enlightenment, things began to shift. The meaning of life came to be seen as the fruit of the freedom of to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Hey, do you see that? You see the difference there? Life is really about me and my self-fulfillment and my potential. So, instead of finding meaning through self-denial, through giving up one's freedom, and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, marriage was defined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. This shift, Keller argues and backs up by research, has left us dissatisfied with marriage. And marriage itself as an institution is losing its hold. Young adults are increasingly pessimistic about its future. The highest good in this new age, is the self. Its fulfillment, its actualization, its potential. This belief militates against binding yourself to others. And it undermines the very sense of community and connection that we long for. One of my favorite writers is Ross Douthat. He's a writer for the New York Times. I think I told you he was the youngest columnist ever to write for the New York Times. After analyzing a new Pew survey, and that's the Pew survey analyzes life and religion. It's a very, actually it's one of the most respected um, information gathering groups. He claims that after looking at the survey that we are in a new and deeper age of individualism. And jumping off from 1 Corinthians 13, here's how Douthat described our tendency to disconnect from each other. He writes, In the future, it seems, there will only be one ism, individualism. 
and its rule will never end. As for religion, it shall decline. As for marriage, it shall be postponed. As for ideologies, they shall be rejected. As for patriotism, it shall be abandoned. As for strangers, they shall be distrusted. Only pot, selfies, and Facebook will abide. And the greatest of these will probably be Facebook. (laughs) Close quote. (laughs) The result of this dramatic shift over the last several hundred years is that many people, a lot of people, are lonely and relationally unfulfilled. This is not how God intended life to be. Running upstream against this massive shift in our culture is the kind of community that God calls his people to. And despite whatever you have picked up from the media, popular media, following Jesus does not belittle or eradicate the self. Instead, the Christian faith balances. Following Jesus balances, and it balances with architectural precision. It balances the individual quest for happiness with a commitment to others and community. And it does this balancing act better than any other philosophy, religion, or self-help, new age idea. So, last week from the book of Acts, Pastor Nick described for us the birth of the church. And the birth of the church set into motion a new community. A different kind of community. Where individuals shared life together at every level. Would you stand, please? And I'm going to read... This next part of our story is going to begin in Acts 2, verse 42. It reads, And they, they, they are the first Christians, the first believers, the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and held all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. Now read this last sentence, verse 47, along with me, okay? And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the power of your word. And the power of Christian community standing out prophetically against the individualism 
of our age. The idol of self and self-fulfillment. Father, may your Holy Spirit today, like a floodlight, reveal and make Jesus clear to us and real to us. May we experience your presence here this, this morning, Father, as you impart your life through your words. And then may we join together in a response of prayer and worship and reflection as you grow us up to become more like Jesus and grow our body up to um, be what you have called us to be, a new community. We pray these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. You may be seated. So, in those five or six verses, you see the DNA of a healthy church. Everything is there. Prayer, evangelism, generosity, supernatural workings. Um, Everything's there. But the thing we want to do this morning is focus on the fellowship. Focus on the community. Their love for one another. So let's begin with a very simple definition of Christian community. What is Christian community? It is sharing life together at every level. First, they shared their lives spiritually. They had a common vision shaped by the values of Jesus. The apostles were passing on everything Jesus had done and demonstrated to them. They prayed together. They remembered Jesus in the sharing of the bread and the wine, the symbols of his death. They gathered to worship, to pray, to learn. They had a common blueprint that inspired and drew them together. Secondly, they shared their lives relationally. They shared meals together. They were practicing hospitality. And there was an informality in their gatherings that was infectious. It was not getting together for the least amount of time as possible and then quickly returning to their individual lives. And this togetherness was not all initiated by the apostles. It could not have been. Individual believers without any church program were reaching out to one another. They wanted to be together. They saw value in learning together. They shared a mutual love for one another. This is what Jesus envisioned. This is bottom-up Christianity. So when you connect these two, doing life together spiritually and relationally, it really is an amazing thing. The words of Jesus excited these new Christians. They felt these words, embraced them, talked about them. Not only in formal settings, but informally. To one another. When a church gets this, when people are excited about God's words, they don't simply talk about it at church or in the classroom or in formal settings. It's not only the pastors that talk about it, but everyday members are inflamed by God's word and shared in natural and organic ways. Spontaneous, Jesus-centered conversations pop up at home, the office, the gym, and everywhere. They happen with believers, and they happen with 
non-believers. This was a way of life. When I joined this community of believers as an 18-year-old and, and really hungry to grow. And this element was tremendously attractive to me. When two believers share together what God is teaching them, there's a connection made. There's a, a union there that is hard to put into words. It has a supernatural feel to it. A spiritual bonding. I recall a few years ago when a certain new family began attending Linworth, and they got connected, invited by and connected to one of our life groups that practices what I am saying. Now, this family had come from a different church setting where God's Word was taught faithfully in formal settings, but um, generally the members didn't talk about it organically in their natural conversations. Church kind of stayed at church. So when they came here and experienced firsthand this inward spiritual life from everyday members, to their own words, they experienced something powerful and profound and the presence of God in a fresh way. And they realized how much they were missing. And they realized how much they longed for that. It is a beautiful thing to share life together spiritually and relationally. It builds friendships. It stirs spiritual affections. It provides emotional support. It grows trust. It makes it safe to take off our masks and be transparent. And it affords us the opportunity to address our real spiritual barriers. Sharing life at these two levels, can I tell you, for our pastors, it's our vision that every one of you experiences that. Every one of you has the opportunity and enters into that kind of, that kind of connection. Now, there's a third way of sharing life together here. I'm just going to spend a moment on it this morning because we're going to spend an entire week on this later on. But it is remarkable that they shared their lives also economically. Did you pick that up? Modern America, just culturally it's important to understand this, modern America is very unique in human history. And I, probably true for the West in general. We have a dominant middle class. You go around the world, that's typically not the case. And the community in Jerusalem was much more like other places in the world today. Far more socially stratified. In the first century, in this church, the middle class was very small. About 10% of the population. And the rich even less. 4 to 7% of the population. That means the vast majority of the households in this church were poor. And some of them probably very poor. And the life and teachings of Jesus obviously inspired a new vision of generosity and of sharing. Members realized that they were all equally drawn together by the grace of God. Therefore, wealthy members realized they had an obligation to share their wealth with less resourced members. 
The church itself developed a system to make sure every member's basic needs were met. This was not a commune, as some suggest. Individuals continued to own their own homes and property, but they viewed their material goods radically differently. They didn't cling to their material possessions as a right. They recognized that God ultimately owned all things. And if he called them to give it up for a poor member of the church, we find examples of people doing that. Wow. Amazing. I mean, remarkable stuff. Remember Jesus' condemnation of the rich man who kept building bigger barns to house his ever-increasing wealth? Wealth way beyond his needs. We might easily imagine this was one of the apostles' teachings that they were passing on and building into this new generation of believers. So, to wrap up this first question, what is community? It is sharing Life at every level, spiritually, relationally, and economically. Let's move to a second question. Okay, that's our first, our first question. Let's move to a second question, and that's this. What role does the Holy Spirit play in creating community? Remember, we've been telling you as we go through the book of Acts, we are focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to connect now these two points, okay? We see there in Acts 2, tremendous community. But what role did the Holy Spirit play in that? What role does the Holy Spirit play in that today? Well, let's look at a text here where Paul helps explain what was going on in Acts 2. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is explaining the phenomena of Christian unity. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 13. Really, really intriguing scripture. Here's what he writes. For just as the body, the body is a metaphor for the church. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, And we're all made to drink of one spirit. Here is the meaning of this metaphor in this picture. When you get baptized in water, it is symbolic of becoming a member of Jesus' church on earth. As a believer, you are a part of Christ's local and visible church. But at the same time, when you accept Jesus, there is a spiritual baptism that takes place in heaven. That baptism immerses you in the Holy Spirit and in the body of Christ, Jesus' invisible, universal church. So every believer shares together in this Holy Spirit. And because every believer shares in the same spirit, in the church of Christ, every human barrier is destroyed. One writer put it this way. People from different walks of life, different parts of the world, 
different ethnic groups and economic classes are all brought together and formed as one body of Christ. It is breathtaking to consider the bond we have in the Holy Spirit as we are joined together. Absolutely nothing else can unite people like the Spirit of the living God. It is the common Spirit living in us that unites us. Every previous way of finding superiority through ethnic or racial differences is gone. Now, I've already hinted a little bit at this unity. There is a tremendous dynamic when two believers share their spiritual lives together. In Colossians, it says that their hearts were Here's the picture he uses. Their hearts were knit together. I love that picture. It's a great picture. And here's why. Because sin in general, sin's distinctive mark is dividing, separating, and splintering. That's the effect of sin. When the Spirit comes, He reconciles, He restores, He knits together. He brings us together. Camaraderie, friendship flow from the shared Holy Spirit living in us. This is what Paul is driving at in Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there with me if you would. Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what he writes there. Paul says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, and patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that, belong, one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I want to focus on verse 3. If we could look at verse three, I like how the NIV renders this same verse. There it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. What is Paul driving at? He's saying it is a spirit. It's a spirit who empowers us to live with humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other in love. What divides us? It's the exact opposite of that. What divides us? Pride. Competition. Impatient. Disrespectful tones. Harsh language. The Spirit living in us is seeking to disrupt those patterns. How does this happen? It happens through the bond of peace, Paul writes. The Spirit gives us peace. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit's peace is based on God's acceptance of you and me. And and how this works is that acceptance speaks to our desire and our sense of need that we always have to win. (laughs) That we always have to justify ourselves. The Holy Spirit's peace disrupts that. 
by communicating God's unconditional acceptance. That same peace from the Holy Spirit quiets our self-defensive reflexes. You know what they are? I think you know what they are. The self-defensive reflexes, those are the ones that always rear their ugly head and extend arguments and make them worse. (laughs) The Holy Spirit, with the peace that He gives, comes underneath and disrupts those by communicating that we don't have to win all the time. We don't have to be the strong one all the time. That peace is a bond. It's a bond. What is a bond? What does a bond do? A bond ties, it fastens, it holds two things together that might otherwise fly apart. Early on in our marriage, I spoke to my wife often in ways that had unfortunately been patterned to me. Disrespectful tones, blaming her unjustly when frustrated, impatient with her when things went wrong that were not her fault, that was, that was common in my communication with her. Now, i got to tell you a little bit about my wife. She is not one to take that sitting down. She has a good, she had and she has, and it's growing still, a good view of herself. And she would not allow herself to be treated that way, to be regarded that way. So obviously that meant a lot of conversation and a lot of conflict. And I had to come to some hard facts that my way of interacting was not great. That I was quick to anger, which the Bible speaks against. Oh, but, you know, but I'm frustrated. And, and, and when you get frustrated and when you get upset, when things go wrong, isn't that kind of... Talking acceptable? That was my rationalization. Doesn't everybody do it this way? No. It was clearly a problem. It was clearly a problem with anger. This is what I'm trying to say. The Holy Spirit in me helped me to recognize that this pattern had to be broken, even though it was quite deep, if we were going to grow in oneness. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He breaks down the individualism within us. The insistence on our way of doing things. The understanding that you are here for my benefit and potential. You are here for my fulfillment. The Holy Spirit disrupts that. And the Holy Spirit also speaks to this lie that we have no power to change. The patterns are too deep. I can't change. He disrupts that. He challenges that. And this is how he forms community. He breaks down these negative patterns of thought and actions that lie deep inside of us. Again, including those we think are too deep to change. He can break through. And in our marriage, this was a very pivotal turning point. And I'm so glad that Louise set meaningful boundaries in that whole process. Look at closely at verse 3. Look closely at verse 3. A couple more things here that we need to point out. Because this verse clearly dispels something not true. It is a temptation to think that, well, the power of the Spirit means I don't have to apply any effort. The Spirit will do it all. 
Well, here we see it quite plainly. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. We are called. We are responsible to apply the Spirit's power by immersing ourselves in the spiritual resources God provides. And by yielding to Him. And when we surround ourselves with the resources God provides, when we yield to Him, then God will supply the power. He will supply the power. Uh, Nick Carruthers shares in our fully mature class a great picture of this relationship between our effort and the Spirit. If you like sailing, and I know we got a few sailboaters here in our congregation, it's true, isn't it, that you can't do anything or go anywhere without what? Yeah, without the wind behind you. That wind in this picture is the Holy Spirit. And it's a fitting picture because when Jesus spoke of the Spirit, he used the word, the Greek word pneuma, which means wind. It's unpredictable. It can't be controlled. You can't see it. You don't know where it comes from, but you feel its effect. So it is in sailing. But every sailor will tell you there still remains a part for you to play. You still must set the stage for the boat to sail. And so our yielding to God, and so our investing in the resources God gives, like His Word, like your brothers and sisters, like the church, places us in a position to have the wind of God blowing behind us and providing energy and power and ability to do things we thought we could never do. Amen? Amen. Now, one final point from this verse in Ephesians 4. Unity will not be easy. Make every effort. You're going to have to apply effort. Again, we are tempted to assume, hey, if the Spirit's in me and the Spirit's in you, unity's going to be just easy peasy. It's going to be a breeze. Paul does not assume that. Recall the heroic Christians we met in Acts 2. Unity was easy for them, right? Well, stick around. The unity there in Acts 2 is going to be severely tested. We'll see that in the later chapters of Acts. Don't put those believers, don't be too quick to put them too high on a pedestal because some are going to terribly fail. And you're going to see they have weaknesses and prejudices and blind spots just as we do. But Paul here says the unity, the connection is not easy. It's not easy in the church. It's not easy in friendships. It's not easy in marriages. We must persevere in it. And the Spirit empowers you to that end. So, let's review where we've been on our second question. We asked the question, what role does the Holy Spirit play in forming community? Here's what we've said. Sharing in the same Spirit is the basis for our community. Okay? Secondly, breaking down individualism is the power for our unity. Okay? And thirdly, persevering through the Spirit sustains our unity. This I believe to be the message that Paul is trying to communicate here in Ephesians chapter 4. So, finally, let's connect now our two questions that we've asked. Let's put it all together. Let's piece it all together. 
We said, what is Christian community? Sharing life together at every level. And now we add it to our second question about how the Spirit, what His role is. And here's the big idea of what we were saying this morning. The Spirit is the basis for sharing our life together. And the Holy Spirit sustains us when sharing life together becomes tested. This is how the Spirit forms and how He sustains Christian community. So, why is this a critical message for today? Why is it so important for now? Because, here's why. The individualism that marks our culture is unraveling our culture. We see it every day. Once you begin to understand this grid, you're going to realize we see it every day. The individualism, the expressive individualism that is the primary idol of our age is the way that we define the highest good. It's unraveling our culture. And it cannot be sustained. Marriages, friendships, families, churches, universities, and other institutions cannot live under the crushing demands. What I mean is, it's the crushing demands that we make when everything and everyone is a means to my end of self-fulfillment. When we are living for self-fulfillment, we will end up making crushing demands on others when they don't meet them. Oh, I'll be your friend. I'll be your spouse. I'll attend your church as long as you keep helping me reach my potential. And when you're too weak and too needy for me to reach my potential, then I'm going to move on. That is the spirit of our age. And that is not a Christian ethic or thought or idea. If the church can be different, if Linworth can be different, if our friendships can be different, if our marriages can be different, if we can love our kids for their good, not ours, not only will we find that our relational needs are filled, but we will demonstrate to the world that the upside down wisdom of Jesus makes sense. It is how we were meant to live. Amen? Amen. Now, there have already been plenty of application points from today's message. And I want to ask you now and later to take some time and reflect on what has already spoken to you. Is something that I said triggered something in your heart? Have you lost excitement? For example, maybe you've lost excitement about God's Word. You never shared informally, inside or outside these four walls. What do you need to do to regain that? Have you given up on the Holy Spirit dislodging a negative pattern that's holed up deep inside of you? Have you surrendered to unbelief? God can't do that. God can't change that. He's too small. Do you need to persevere in unity through the power of the Spirit? Do you need to go one more step? 
go again one more time to that person in an effort to heal a damaged relationship. I would encourage you to take time as we sing and as we continue to pray and worship. Take time this week to reflect on what is the Holy Spirit saying to you. You might take advantage of our prayer team, our prayer and ministry team. After the service, they will be gathered here in front. With the Holy Spirit rejuvenating our lives, we can remember, and there's a, this is an important sequence, <laughs> with the Holy Spirit rejuvenating our lives, we can remember our forgiveness. We can start anew. We can again expect great things from God. And we can pray bold prayers. In a moment, we're going to take our offering and we'll collect our Connect cards if you've filled something out. I want to call the band up. And as they come up, I want to share one final story from a very famous writer that you may not have known as a Christian, Wendell Wendell Berry, poet, novelist, essayist. Berry was taking a walk with a friend and they observed a plot of Maximilian sunflowers. Maximilian sunflowers grow to nearly 10 feet tall and they're actually native to the Midwest. And his friend pointed out that one was growing alone, disconnected from the community of sunflowers. Barry observed that this solo, individualistic plant had grown very tall, impressive, but it was clearly not healthy. The blossoms were thick and heavy, so heavy the branches were starting to strain and break under the weight. Now, in one sense, the plan had succeeded. It was unusually tall, but it had failed in its intended purpose. These plants only thrive and grow as they grow in community, not isolation. Barry concluded, it had failed because it had lived lived outside an important part of its definition, which consists of its individuality and its community. A part of its potential lay in its community, not just itself. Barry believes that people are often lonely and isolated because we have lost a biblical, the biblical true health that's found in community. And we've forgotten that, quote, to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the power of your words and the power of the call to be a part of a new community that has grown and increased around the world for 2,000 years. It's amazing to be a part of that. Yet, Father, individually here, there are all kinds of needs and hurts and aches that I believe you have spoken to this morning. There are relational conflicts. There is anxiety. There is depression. There are fears for the future. 
Father, some of this is because of just simply living in a broken world. But some of it, Father, for some of us is because we have chosen to live in isolation and desperately need community. Father, help my friends this morning, wherever they are on that spectrum, and with whatever that next step needs to be to see a renewal of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, not in isolation, but drawing them into community, not to lose themselves, but actually to find themselves. Thank you, Father, that true community. And we confess, Lord, oh, we confess that our churches and our marriages have often blown it on this point. But Father, help us to remember and to come back and to realize that to be in community does not mean to lose our individuality, but we actually find the true meaning of our lives, our true real selves. We find in community. We become more of the people that you made us to be. May that freedom reverberate through our body and through the hundreds and thousands of people that we touch every week as a church congregation, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the gyms where we go. Lord, may the renewal of the Holy Spirit overflow in our lives. May the healing that takes place, may the community that happens in us overflow into a kind of life that attracts and draws our friends, our neighbors, the people we do, uh, we work and play and live around. Thank you for our offering. Now we, as we move into our offering, we give to you our resources because we love you. Not because we have to. Because we love you. And we want God to help the under-resourced members of this body. And we want to help the church around the world that needs resources. Father, we pray that as we sing and pray, we would see your tremendous worth. For it's in Christ's name and glory we pray. Amen. Amen.